once a great empire that stretched from Spain to India and was the unquestioned most powerful state in the world. But on the eve of the Crusades, the 11th century, that picture had changed considerably. The Abbasid Empire, once the strongest in the world, had become much weakened and was limited to a small area around Iraq. And it was increasingly dominated by outside powers, particularly the Turkish military who had been brought in. Throughout the Islamic world, rebel groups and splinter states and even rivals to the great caliphate had arisen. Many of these were Shia in opposition to the main Sunni caliphate. And amongst the Shia of the time, the most important and certainly the largest group were the Ismaili Shia. Well, we've focused on the Sunni mainstream line of Islamic history up to this point. But to understand what is going to happen in the centuries that come, particularly as the Crusades strike and invasions from Central Asia begin to wear away at Muslim power, it's important that we take into consideration the Shia forces and particularly the Ismailis, who rise to rival and for a while even overshadow the main Sunni caliphate. So that will be our subject today. I hope you'll stay with us. Welcome back. Today we're going to talk about the rise of one of the most important groups in the Muslim Middle Ages, and that are the Ismaili Shias. Now this might get a little bit confusing, so throughout today's podcast we want to focus on the big picture again. There'll be a lot of names and a lot of lineages, but you don't really have to remember those. The important thing is just to look at the, the situation is going to develop. So, for some perspective today about the groups we're going to talk about, Roughly 10 to 15% of the Muslims of the world today are Shia. Now the exact number is not known because there's a lot of conflict and a lot of underreporting by governments. Of those 10 to 15%, about 85% of those, the vast majority of Shia in the world are what we call Twelver or Ithna Asher Shia, which is what the word means, because they acknowledge 12 Imams. There are smaller branches particularly the Ismailis and the Zaydis, which are about 5% of the Shia population each. And there are numerous, numerous other groups, splinters off of these groups, and some groups that are really very controversial on where they belong. For example, such as the Druze and the Alawites, who break off of this Shia stream. So, we're not going to try and follow all of these different sects today, except to note that they end up getting dispersed to different areas throughout the Middle East. And in many cases, the Ismailis, who were today a very small part of the Shia, were, during the Golden Age, the most important group. Well, today, Ismailis are primarily found in Pakistan and India, although throughout their history, they were forced to move a lot. Of course, they were in opposition to the Abbasid Sunni uh, mainstream, and so they got driven out of a lot of places and went into hiding. And so their most important historical manifestations were in North Africa, in the mountains of Central Asia, even as far down as Yemen. The Zaydis, which are one of the groups we won't be talking about today, but do appear in the news quite a bit, uh, they were pushed down mostly into Yemen, and their most famous manifestation today are as the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Alawites, who are sometimes considered a splinter branch of the Shia and sometimes not, are the ruling force in Syria today. And the Druze are an important minority in Lebanon, especially during the civil war in Lebanon. So the point is not where they end up today. But the fact that during the Middle Ages, they were forced to move considerably and frequently. And so that's why they end up usually on the periphery of the Muslim empire. First off, why are so many of these Shia groups known by numbers? I mean, the main group are known as the Twelvers. The Zaydis are sometimes known as Fivers. And at least one branch of the Ismailis are known as Seveners. Sometimes the whole group are referred to by that. 
Well, as we've talked about before, the key concept in Shia Islam is that of the Imam. That is the person with a very special spiritual authority in each age and who has a direct family lineage back to the Prophet himself. Well, the Sunnis basically define themselves in contrast to this. Their leaders were just normal people who studied what the Prophet did and said. At least that's the way they see it. If someone in Sunni Islam said they were receiving direct visions and words from God, that would immediately be considered blasphemous. We know that the Shia, by contrast, believed that this spiritual leadership, which was passed from the Prophet Muhammad to his son-in-law, Ali, who they believe should have been the rightful leader of the Muslim community after the Prophet, continued. He passed it on to his sons, and it continued on that in each age there would be an imam, a person who was the spiritual guide to the community during that time period. Well, that's what sets him apart from the Sunnis. But the question of who is the imam in any given age is not a straightforward one. And this goes back to tradition. As we've said before, in Islam and in Arab society in general, there was not a tradition of primogenitor like we have in Europe, where the kingship passed from the king to his eldest son and so on, even if that eldest son might be an infant. In a Bedouin tribe, of course, you couldn't do this. You couldn't give leadership to someone who might be weak or, in particular, didn't have the confidence and support of most of the tribes. So yes, leadership was passed on through the family line, particularly through the male line, but there had to be a consensus of which one of the male descendants was considered the most competent. And we've seen this with the caliphs. They are not automatically the eldest son. So the main divisions that will emerge in Shiism come from how they trace the line of legitimate imams. Because those imams are the ones who are creating the doctrines in any given age, then each different sect of Shia which follows slightly different lines of imams, are going to end up with different doctrines. So this might be a bit confusing. So let's look at the simplest example. Ali, of course, is the first legitimate imam. But when he died, his son Hassan, who was the eldest, became the second imam. No problem there. But Hassan abdicated the position as part of the peace treaty he made with the Umayyads, whom, of course, all the Shia hate. And he retired to a life of solitude in Medina meaning he didn't continue any rebellion against the Umayyads. Well, of course, we know his younger brother, Al-Hussein, took up the cause, and he became the third imam. He fought against the Umayyads and was martyred at the all-important battle of Karbala. Well, so far, that's not a problem. But the question becomes, who should be the fourth imam? Should it be another of the son of Ali? I mean, he was married nine times, and he had a lot of sons. Well, we've seen so far, the leadership has passed to the eldest son, then to another son. Should it stay in that same generation, or does it jump to the next generation? And this is always a succession question anywhere, within the caliphates, within the royal families. This was recently a big controversy in the Saudi royal family. So, there are some who believe that it should be another son of Ali, there are some who believe it should be the son of Hassan, because Hassan was elder. And some who believe it should be a son of Al-Hussein, because he was the one who was actually serving as, as imam at the time. So let's just take this one example to show how this controversy can have a big impact on the way the community developed. As we said, after the death of Al-Hussein, it really boiled down to two main candidates. The son of Al-Hussein, known as Zayn al-Abidin, he is acknowledged by most Shia sects as the fourth imam because he inherits from his father. Now, Zayn al-Abidin, after seeing the bloodshed of Karbala, he was a survivor. Uh, most of the sons of Hussein were killed in that battle. So he stepped away from politics. He adopted a life of quiet prayer, almost like a monk, but he continued to provide spiritual guidance. And so for those who followed Zayn al-Abidin, they saw his behavior as the model. The other main candidate was Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyah, who was essentially the uncle of Zayn al-Abidin, meaning he was the next son of Ali who would have been in line if it had stayed in the same generation. And as you might expect, there is a splinter group 
that follows Ibn al-Hanafiya and the line of imams that emerge from him. Now, this sounds like just a question of lineage, and it's sort of a technical point, but the thing is that Ibn al-Hanafiya had a very different personality. He led the Shia resistance. He wanted to continue fighting. So those that followed him took his behavior as the proper model of the Shia leader. And so we can see which lineage you choose to follow is going to have a big difference in the doctrines that you adopt. Well, anyway, you get the idea. This is one particular split that happens after one particular imam. Multiply that several times. Every time there's any sort of controversy about who should inherit, we get more splits. And this is why the Shia uh, split into a lot of different factions and a lot of different sects, many of which persist until today. Well, we promised we were going to talk about the Ismailis, who were really the most important faction during the Middle Ages. But before we can get to them, there is one more doctrine that we have to talk about, and it's very important to the Shia, and that is the concept of the Mahdi. You may have heard this term in history. It pops up a lot, and it's usually associated with rebellions, sometimes really huge rebellions. And this is because of the nature of the concept. Well, how does it come about? Well, the word Mahdi means rightly guided one, but it was a first applied to this man we just talked about, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, the one whom some Shia acknowledged as the rightful fourth imam instead of Zayn al-Abidin. Well, this term was first applied to him by his followers just as an honorific, saying he was the man who was correctly guided and that we could count on him and we had confidence in his leadership. Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya died in the year 700 after he went to meet the Umayyad Caliph in Damascus, ostensibly to make peace. But a legend arose amongst his followers that he didn't actually die there, but went into a spiritual hiding in a mountain near Medina. Now you can see why his followers would want to say that. They had followed him because he was the resistance leader, the rebel leader against the Umayyads who were hated. Now they have a report that he's going to go meet with the Khalif, who they see as really being the, the chief of evil, and make a deal. Well, when he doesn't emerge from that, it would be very embarrassing to say, yeah, we followed this guy instead of following Zayn al-Abidin, the one the rest of you went with, but our guy ended up basically making a deal with the enemy. But the fact that his body never turns up and he never emerges from this visit conveniently fits into the idea he went there, but he miraculously disappeared. And he's going to come back and restore our community. Now, this idea of a miraculous transportation from harm was not new. In fact, it's found throughout Islam and it's found in other religions. For example, Islam teaches that Jesus was not actually crucified but his body was switched out by God, and it was actually somebody else who was put up there on the cross, and that's how they deal with the crucifixion. But the parallels don't end there. If al-Hanafiya went into spiritual hiding, or it's usually called occultation, that meant he was going to return at some time. I mean, why go into hiding if you don't mean to come out? Some prophecies, it said that he will accompany Jesus at the end of the world to restore order. But in any case, the, the messianic image, the idea of a savior who's going to come at the end of time, is very similar. As we said before, most Shia do not consider al-Hanafiya to be an imam. But some sects, the ones that did follow him, believe that as the hidden imam, because he's not dead, he still has a form of communication going on with his people left back here in the world. So in that way, they didn't choose to follow the wrong person, even if it seems like it. That deals with one particular imam. But as we've said, the Shia are going to be persecuted a lot. All the different sects will come under persecution and will have their leaders killed at different times. And so this concept that the last imam doesn't die, but goes into hiding and will return to deliver his people, the correct believers, becomes very common in Shia Islam, 
even though the different sects disagree on which one is the correct imam and which one is the hidden imam. This is where those numbers come from. It's a question of how many imams are in your chain before we get to the last imam. So the Twelvers, or the Ithna Asher Shia, who today are the largest branch, they trace their lineage through 12 imams. But that last imam, they believe, went into hiding. And this is because he actually disappeared. The body was never found, and so it's believed that he didn't die. Well, this means a couple of things. First, if your imam is hidden and not dead, then you can't have a living imam at the time. And so most branches of Shia have leaders who are known by different titles, but they're at least one stage removed from an imam. Like in Twelver Shia, for example, this person is called the Marja. But because it's not the designated imam, there can be more than one of them. Currently, there are 71 people alive who have active followings as Marja in Twelver Shia Islam. These include the Supreme Guide in Iran, the leaders of the major factions of Shia in Iraq and in Lebanon. Secondly, it means that your imam is going to return at some point and win things for your side. When he does, that means it's going to be a time of conflict. Well, how do we know when that time comes about? No shortage of charismatic figures has arisen claiming to be the returning Imam or Mah, just as plenty of people have claimed to be the second coming of Christ or his brother or something similar to that. So this leads to the famous Mahdi movements that we get throughout history. Charismatic, popular leader who leads a rebellion claiming to be the Mahdi, and there have been several of these. The most famous one was the Mahdi War in Sudan in the 19th century, but there have been several of these. And lastly, and probably most importantly, is all of these factors tend to strengthen the importance of the individual spiritual leader in Shia Islam. Even if your leader is not one claiming to be the hidden Imam or the returning Mahdi, there will be those followers who think that's what he really is, just as there were some Iranians who believed that the Ayatollah Khomeini during the Iranian Revolution was in fact uh, the returning Imam, although he never claimed to be that himself. Even if you don't think that this is the final reckoning in the end of time, this general concept of great spiritual leaders emerging who have a direct communication to the line of Imams and therefore to God coming to deliver their faithful, even for a short time, is going to sort of color the nature of Shia authority. And so we'll see these factional leaders who have tremendous authority. But of course, that wouldn't happen if there were not actual persecution and oppression going on to create the need for rebel leaders and the need for Shia to hide out at times and for their leaders to be concealed. So these political conditions, the reality of the threats under which they live, really supports this idea of hidden spiritual leaders who are going to come and lead these great rebellions. So while the Shia originally began as a small group, and they were largely Arab in origin, uh, the Mahdi concept really appeals particularly to oppressed minority groups and to new converts to Islam who feel that they are left out of power during this Abbasid age. So as centralized Abbasid power grows, and particularly as the, the power of the Turkish, very zealously Sunni military grows, Shia groups are going to tend to grow on, on the outside, particularly outside major urban areas, on the borderlands, and they're going to attract uh, a lot of minority groups. This is particularly true in North Africa with the Berber populations, but it's also true in Central Asia, it's true in Yemen, and so on. Okay, welcome back. Well, we promised we were going to talk about the Ismailis today, a small faction, but during the Middle Ages, the largest and most influential Shia sect. And here again, we don't want to get too wrapped up in the lineage and all the details of who follows whom, because it can be extremely confusing, and it's not really that important for our purposes. 
unless you're going to be a professional historian, in which case you'll need to go uh, way beyond this podcast. But in any case, we have to go back to the sixth imam acknowledged by most Shia, and that is Jafar al-Sadiq. He is one of the most important and probably really the most influential of the imams. He is acknowledged by the Ismailis and the Twelvers and most other sects. He served for 28 years, and that's longer than any other imam did. But uh, Jafar was also one of these people who was not interested in leading rebellions and having political control. Uh, he spent his time studying and developing Shiite law and doctrine and philosophy. And so he is extremely important. In fact, the main Shia school of law is known as the Jafari school. He is said to have recorded more hadiths than all the other imams combined. This is extremely important because in Shia Islam, hadiths that have passed through an imam have the greatest authority. And the traditions of the imams themselves are considered authoritative. So we also study what the imams say. We would, in any case, he has more of these than all the other imams. Now, like we said, he thought it was the imam's position to stay out of politics. He didn't want to be a rebel leader, but he lived at a very critical time. He was right at the end of the Umayyad rule. Remember, this is the first century Sunni caliphate. And the rebellions were just beginning to overthrow the Umayyads. And in particular, there was the Abbasid revolution, which is kind of ironic to think now, but they co-opted the Shia and made it sound like they were going to be allies with them. Even though many Shia did support the Abbasid revolution, Jafar al-Sadiq refused to join in. So on political matters, he tried to stay out of it. On spiritual matters, though, he really strengthened the position of the imam. So it's from him several of the most important Shia doctrines come. Always in Shia, the idea of the personal, individual, spiritual leadership of the one guide of any particular age is extremely important. But Jafar al-Sadiq was a, a prolific writer and codifier of laws. So he took this whole concept and really codified the doctrine of it. So several important doctrines from him come. One of those is called Ismah, which is basically the doctrine of infallibility and incorruptibility of the Imam. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff. And, and this, of course, is something that's absolute blasphemy to a Sunni. You also get the idea of, the, of Nas, which in this case means passing of the Imam role from one imam to his successor. The imam who's living at the time will designate his successor. Now, you would think this would put an end to some of the controversies that we have, but actually these two concepts together are going to lead to really the biggest split within Shia Islam. Well, how does that happen? Well, Jafar al-Sadiq, who was the sixth imam and pretty much respected by everyone, had designated his son Ismail to be his successor by this official investiture of Nas. That name Ismail already sounds significant because we're talking about the Ismailis. Well, as we said, Jafar al-Sadiq, he lived a long time. So long, in fact, that his son Ismail died before him. You can already see where this is going to be a problem because we have an imam who is supposed to be infallible and who designates his successor as an infallible decision. Well, he has made this decision and invested someone who is never going to become imam. So the question becomes, who takes over after Jafar? Well, it's not just two contenders who emerge. There are, in fact, six known factions which emerge over this question. Some of them survive today. Some of them died out. So what are some of them? Well, the Twelvers, who we have said are the largest branch of Shia, they say that Jafar's younger son, who is also Ismail's half-brother, Musa al-Qadham, is the one who should have been the imam, and that's the person they trace their lineage from. Whether he was actually ever designated as the successor is controversial in itself, and this is why the Shiite community gets so divided on this. Because what actually happened, before Jafar al-Sadiq died, the Shiite community was under siege in Medina. Uh, actually physically by the Abbasid army. And it's said that the Abbasid caliph had ordered his army to kill 
not only the current imam, but the next imam. And his goal was to extinguish this line of Shia imams and get rid of the Shia forever. So uh, Ismail had died, and it was obvious that they were going to kill the next person who was designated. So many reports circulated about who was designated, and it's believed that some of these were fake. They were rumors just to protect the true imam. So we get this controversial position when this man, Musa al-Qadim, we have some reliable reports that he was designated as the next successor, as the next imam, but so were other people, and we don't know if any of these were to be believed or whether they were just there to trick the Sunnis. The ones who will become the Twelvers decide to follow Musa al-Qadim's line. A number of factions, though, refused to accept the idea of a second person designated after the infallible designation of Ismail. So one group, which will become known as the Seveners, believe that Ismail didn't die and he is actually the hidden imam waiting to return. It's a problem again when we have a controversial death or disappearance which would really weaken our claim in our, our lineage. This idea of the hidden imam comes. So you can see why we get the number seven. Jafar was six. His son Ismail was supposed to be seven, but he never took over. However, to those people who couldn't accept the idea that Ismail would have died before his father, and you could see why this would be a problem, this would really weaken the claim of infallibility, they say, well, he didn't die, Ismail is the seventh Imam, and he's still alive, but he's in this spiritual hiding. And so the Seveners, as they are called, become the faction who follow Ismail as the hidden Imam. And like a good Mahdi, he is going to return as well to liberate his people. Well, still another group acknowledged that Ismail did die. There seems to be evidence for that. But they have to deal with the fact that he was the infallible designee for the position and is now dead. Well, why would an infallible leader designate someone, obviously knowing he's going to die and never take over the job? Well, the only logical conclusion would be because you want Ismail's son to become Imam. That man was known as Muhammad ibn Ismail, and this is where most of the Ismailis trace their lineage. And again, as I said, it gets uh, very splintered, and there's many different factions. But the people we're talking about today, the Ismaili Shia, believe that it was the son of Ismail, Muhammad ibn Ismail was supposed to be the next Imam, and they traced their lineage through him. Well, unlike the other sects, the Ismailis believed that the uh, Imamate continued because Muhammad ibn Ismail doesn't go into some uh, mysterious disappearance. In fact, the line that follows from him is actually going to develop into a very powerful state, the most powerful Shiite empire and state in history. That's the Fatimid Caliphate, which we'll talk about. So they have no reason to believe that the Imam has disappeared. Well, there would be many more schisms in that line, but that line that follows him continues to believe that Ima Imams live until today, and the largest group of the Ismailis, they count 49 Imams. The current Imam is the fourth Aga Khan, who is a British citizen, one of the richest men in the world, and is one of the most famous people in the world in terms of charitable organizations. But he is the 49th Ismaili Imam. Okay, well we've talked about a lot of lineages and we know this gets very confusing and there's no need for you to remember these. But the Ismailis split from the other factions really at the height of Abbasid power, at the time of Harun al-Rashid. As we've said before, these lineages don't just exist in themselves. The reason that people pick one side or the other is not just technical. It's because the two different contenders, Musa al-Qadim and Muhammad ibn Ismail, have very different ideas on what the Imam should be and what the Shiite community would do. So, the big controversy throughout this early Shiite history, and it continues to the present, is whether the Imams should stay out of politics, be essentially spiritual figures, 
or whether they should lead active resistance to the Sunni power, to the Abbasids. Well, as you would expect, of these two main candidates, they chose different paths. Ismail was very much involved in the rebellions against the Abbasids. That's one of the reasons they were attacked and eventually killed. His son, Muhammad, who the one the Ismailis acknowledged, organized a fairly covert network for spreading Shiism. And they employed a very important concept in Shia Islam. This is called taqiyya. Taqiyya basically means one can hide their true beliefs and true motivations if it is for the purpose of the faith. Now, this is something in Sunni Islam which is considered terrible. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to acknowledge your faith right up to the end. But because of the situation that the Shia found themselves in, being persecuted, in fact, their leaders were being killed, right, as this is develop. The idea that you could continue to spread Shia Islam covertly and be successful at this, and so therefore it would be better off if your true intentions were not known, uh, this becomes accepted. This is a very controversial topic even within Shia Islam, but this idea of Muhammad ibn Ismail was very successful at this. He sent out agents throughout the empire they converted a lot of people. They built this really sort of underground religious network, and it worked very well. Significant groups in this network would go to Yemen, to Bahrain, in what is today eastern Saudi Arabia, where there are still very active Shia minorities. And a large number fled all the way to North Africa, to the far end of the empire. They would establish the most significant Ismaili state, which would become known as the Fatimids. And we're going to talk about them uh, much more in the future. Because the Abbasid grip on North Africa, and particularly way off in Morocco, they had lost control of those areas a long time ago. So these Ismailis flee there, and they are able to establish a very strong state. So that is the faction of Ismail. Musa al-Qadhim, by contrast, was known as a very gentle and tolerant man. In fact, that's what his name means. The people who followed him saw a much less confrontational future. They thought they could coexist in the Abbasid Empire. Now, as you follow these episodes, you know it's been up and down. Within the Abbasid Empire, there have been attempts to reconcile with the Shia and then attempts to kill them. They believed they could work it out. And in fact, it was Musa's son, Ali Arida, who we discussed before, who was actually appointed by the Abbasid Caliph, al-Ma'mun as his successor, meaning he was designated, a Shia Imam was designated to become the Abbasid Caliph. Now as we know, he never actually took power, he died before al-Ma'mun did and he never became Caliph. Musa was known for his gentle spiritual nature. Under his time, it would really be a high point of Sunni-Shia reconciliation, even though it had been a low point just before this. Okay, so those are the two different strands, and they really parallel the two different strands throughout Shia history. Uh, are we going to separate ourselves spiritually, or are we going to actively resist the political power? Well, those who follow Ismail, things are going to get pretty rough for them. In fact, Ismail is the seventh imam in their lineage. In Ismaili doctrine, the eighth, ninth, and tenth imams are said to have gone into hiding because of the persecution from the Abbasids. And in fact, it was a situation like a hidden imam and a Mahdi situation. It might have stayed that way if it had not been for the 11th Ismaili imam. By that time, the Abbasid Caliphate was falling apart. Rebellions were happening throughout the empire. And this 11th imam, who called himself the Mahdi, so we get a clear idea of what he's thinking of himself and what his followers are thinking he's going to do. He would be the one who would establish the Fatimid state in North Africa. He would establish a rival Fatimid caliphate, actually claim the caliphate for himself. And this would grow to become the most powerful Muslim state in the Middle East for a while. And this is when Ismaili Shiism is at its height. And so because of that, even though this person has designated himself as the Mahdi, you can see things are going pretty well for them. There's no reason to believe that their line is going to die out or end with him. Ismailis were big at the time, but it's the Twelver Shiism doesn't really become big until the Safavid Empire is established in Iran, and that's much later in the 16th century. And they make Twelver Shia Islam the official creed. 
So at this time, we're talking about the 10th and 11th centuries here, Abbasid power is falling apart. It's the Ismailis who for a while look like they're on the ropes and they're going to be eliminated. But by the time of their 11th Imam, they are actually bouncing back in a major way. point we have a weakened Abbasid state which is increasingly dominated by the Turkish military which makes its fame crushing Shiite rebellions and some other rebellions so they become zealously Sunni. But we also have a reinvigorated Ismaili Shia movement but one that has been pushed to the peripheries of of the empire so is now starting to grow in North Africa, Bahrain, Yemen and Central Asia. Well, this is the situation around the 11th century, on the eve of the Crusades. But despite all this division, some of the greatest Islamic scholarship is going to develop during this time. And despite the divisions, or maybe because of them, uh, Sunni and Shia doctrines are going to become even more clarified. Okay, so far we've said a lot about the history of the Ismailis, who they followed, but what about their belief? Well, during this process of splitting off and becoming persecuted, distinct Ismaili doctrines are going to emerge that the Sunni mainstream will find very disturbing and, in many cases, quite blasphemous. And that's going to lead to more opposition and more conflict, and so it really becomes a cycle. But we need that history to really understand why Ismaili doctrines are so different from Sunni doctrine. Remember again, Sunni Islam is essentially a large state. It's going to rely on institutions like legal schools, courts, and governments, codify its doctrine. Those are going to be enshrined in laws, and they have to be sustainable for future generations. So you can't rely on someone who has a spiritual gift or spiritual guidance. You need institutions. So as the Shia sects are driven underground, they are going to rely heavily on individual spiritual leaders who often have to do things in secret. So this idea of secrecy, we've already seen the concept of taqiyya, the idea that you can hide your beliefs, kind of the environment they're forced to live in. Now also, because Sunni Islam is running a state, it tends to keep the philosophy and theology separate from lawmaking. But these scattered Shia communities, which at least start out very strong, are going to combine all these things. So their imam is everything. He's the lawgiver. He's the mystic. He's the military leader, the political leader. He's the one who comes up with your philosophy. And so we're going to see these things all combined with the Ismailis. So let's look at just a couple of their doctrines, and you can see why they may cause some problems for the mainstream Sunnis. A key idea for Ismailis is a distinction between Zahar and Batin, and that is between the external and the hidden meaning of things. And they apply this to everything. Everything has a hidden or a Batin meaning to it. The Quran has hidden meanings. The Hadith has hidden meanings. The prayers have hidden meanings. Even fasting during Ramadan, the Hajj, all of these things have a hidden or Batin meaning to them. And of course, if it's a hidden meaning, that means only an elite few in each age can know what those meanings are. Well, you would expect the imam is the primary person in each age know the hidden meaning of all these things. Now, of course, this idea is absolutely offensive to Sunnis who believe everything was revealed with the Prophet and all we can do is study it. Well, during the Abbasid period, the term bataniya, coming from this concept of batan, becomes a negative term for the Ismailis. And in fact, this is what they are labeled. They're called you know, Bataniists, which is essentially calling them heretics. But it's easy for us to see why the Ismailis would develop such an idea. For most of their history, they're going to be a minority, one that's not allowed to preach its ideas openly. And even when they are allowed some freedom, they can see that the vast majority of Muslims are not following their imams. So you have to answer the question why, if our leader is the one truly chosen by God, most Muslims and most people reject him. Obviously, that must mean that they don't have the truth. Well, you can say that, but that means you're essentially alienating all the other 
non-Ismailis out there and you're going to be basically in a state of warfare with them. So to be able to say this without putting yourself completely at odds with the Sunni mainstream and the rest of the Shia, you can say people have part of the truth. They have the surface truth. They have the truth that is prepared for the general population, which is good. And that's all you need in this life. You can follow the surface level of things, the laws, the rituals. But the Batan truth is just for a small group, which of course is the best group and is of course our group. That way they can include all the other religions in their system as well. The Jews and the Christians, well they, they have a version of the Dhahar. They have part of this. They have the scriptures. They just don't have this absolute hidden truth that we have. Okay, well, what is an example of hidden truth? Uh, I'll give you one example, and we, again, we don't want to get wrapped up in all the details of this, because as you would imagine, these hidden truths get very, very complex, and they rely on uh, a lot of ideas you don't find anywhere else. So one example that's very famous is two of the most popular images in the Quran are the pen and the tablet, a writing tablet, the qalam and the lawh. And most Arabic students will recognize these. These are some of the first words you learn. We use lauch to mean like a blackboard or a whiteboard that you write on. Well, the pen is referred to several times, and most notably in the surah of the pen, which is surah 68, which begins by saying, God teaches by the pen. The lauch, this tablet, is also mentioned as the place where things are recorded forever, and specifically in uh, Surah 85. We talk about uh, Allah al-Mahfuz, the preserved tablet. Remember, as we said, anyone who claims to quote the Quran should at least tell you what Surah they're taking it from. Now, obviously, nobody reads these things and thinks that God is talking about physical pens and writing tablets. I mean, God's not using an actual pen. But the standard Sunni interpretation says that this refers to God's preserving of all knowledge and actions, or his predestining all actions, of God having written everything down for eternity. Some thinks it refers to the fact that God forgets nothing, that all our actions and deeds are written down. And some also think this refers to the idea of the Quran itself being recorded for all eternity. But we can see with all these interpretations, they're pretty straightforward. You're still talking about writing and recording. And so you can see the metaphor of pen and tablet leads pretty easily to these conclusions. The Ismaili explanation is quite different. To explain this, we have to explain a little bit of Ismaili cosmology, their beliefs of how the world works just to give an idea how it's a different point of view. Uh, Ismailis see creation beginning in the absence of time and space, when God was the only thing that exists. He commanded being. Now the Arabic command to be is kun. If you take the letters from that, we get the word kuni, which is a state of being. So they believe the first thing that is created is kuni, this idea, the state of being. The next thing that is created out of the light of kuni is qadr. This term... We've mentioned it before, and we could spend hours talking about Qadr. Qadr can mean determinism, sometimes fate. It's a, it's a concept very open to multiple interpretations. But in any case, the Ismailis believe that Kuni is feminine and Qadr is masculine, and it's sort of a yin-yang type of essence here. Well, these concepts are derived heavily from ancient philosophies, particularly Persian philosophy. So the Ismailis believe that Kuni and Qadr are what are referred to by the pen and the lao. Now this may seem like a bit of a leap, but one reason they do this is there is a popular hadith that says that the pen is the first thing that God created. If, if the pen is the first thing God created, well, we believe that kuni is the first thing God created. Well, that must be what it is. In any case, now I've really butchered this idea. I mean, you can read hundreds of pages of it and get a much more nuanced view. But the point here is that this is a very hidden meaning. The Sunni idea of pen and tablet basically being miraculous recording is pretty much a straightforward metaphor. You could guess that. The Ismaili view that the pen and the tablet refer to uh, the feminine being of things and Qadar, the fate, that is a huge jump. And unless you knew their cosmology, you would never guess something like that. So that's one example. 
Okay, having said that, the thing that's probably most distinct in the Ismaili worldview is the concept of time. It's described as a combination of cyclic time and linear time. What we mean by that is they see history as a series of cycles, seven in total. These cycles encompass all of human history, from the pagan era, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and so forth. Well, in each of the seven cycles, there is a natak. Uh, the word means speaker, but they're essentially talking about a prophet. This is the person who gives the dhahar, or that external revelation from God. The revelation of laws, of rituals, things you can obey physically. There will then be seven successors to each one of these. So each cycle has one natak. That natak is going to have seven successors till we get to the end. We get the person called the Wasi, who is the final speaker in the series of seven, and who will reveal the hidden revelation, or the Batin meaning. And this ends that cycle, and then the next one begins. Well, you could see where this cosmology comes from. Okay, why is it seven successors? Well, because the Ismailis believe that their seventh Imam, this was Muhammad ibn Ismail, so that fits for their cycle. So basically, they're going to take that current situation and say all the other cycles work the same way. Well, if there were seven imams in a cycle, it makes sense that the total number of cycles will be seven also. And then you just project the scriptures onto this. So the Nautics of each of these seven ages become key prophets from the scriptures. Uh, the first one is Adam, then Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Each one of them, more or less, introduces a set of laws or rituals, basically dhahir rules. This is very clear in the case of people like Moses and Jesus and Muhammad. We can see them introducing a set of rules. You have to go a little bit to see that in, say, Noah. And since our Imam is the Mahdi, it follows that this cycle that we're on, this seventh cycle that begins with Muhammad ibn Ismail, this must be the final one. So in this case, there's not going to be a new cycle. Our Mahdi, essentially our leader, Muhammad ibn Ismail, from whom we trace our lineage, is not going to initiate another cycle, but he's going to bring about the end of time, in which case all the hidden truth will be revealed to everybody. Now, in fairness, we have to say almost every cosmology, no matter how old they are or how many thousands of years they cover, always sees culmination of everything happening right now in whatever year we happen to be living in. Well, the problem with any system that predicts the end of the world is what happens when the world doesn't end. So in credit to the Ismailis, they actually adapt to this. Unlike the people on the prophecy shows on the radio and Sunday morning television that who just keep moving up the date for the end of the world and which doesn't seem to bother their viewers at all. So in this case, we had Muhammad ibn Ismail. He was supposed to be the Mahdi. That would have been the end of time. But ironically and surprisingly, uh, instead of the end times coming, uh, the Ismailis tend to grow. Their, their leader is driven out of Syria by the Abbasids, but he sets up a very successful state in North Africa. But what this means is we're obviously not ushering in the end of time, but we're ushering in a new time, a new golden age. So the Mahdi in this Ismaili system doesn't bring about the end of time, but brings about a new age in which there will continue to be imams and it will be the establishment of the true Muslim state on earth. And it would eventually lead to the reconciliation of all the religions. In, in any case, it's a very different view of history, but it has everything coming to a head at the moment of this Ismaili math. Well, Ismailis will split over this point. Some of them don't think that's what happened. They'll split a few more times as we continue to go down the lineage. But the, the important thing here is we're seeing this doctrine of cycles being used to justify that the Ismaili state coming into being in an actual physical empire, a political military empire at that time, basically in the 11th century with the Fatimid dynasty is the culmination of world history. Well, the Imams still continue to be responsible for the Batin meanings of things. They continue to teach this, but the role of the Imam 
will be combined with this political leader, uh, the, the caliph of the day. In fairness, although this sounds very different from what we see in Sunni Islam, in official Sunni Islam takes a very hard view on this. The idea of hidden meanings, I mean, is something they see as blasphemous. But if we really look at Sunni Islam overall, particularly the Sufi trend, which we've talked about before, we're going to see a lot of the same things, a lot of the same ideas as of Sufis having the ability, almost this mystical ability to commune with God and to get this deeper heart understanding that goes beyond rituals. The difference though, again, in Sunni Islam, which is this large system, Sufism, this mystic component, plays one particular role, and it's limited to a specific place in the overall system. So we've got Islamic law, we've got Islamic political government, we've got Islamic philosophy, all these Sunni things, and Sufism is there in part of it. Well, in any case, we've talked about a lot, there's been a lot here to follow, but again, the idea is to focus on the big picture, is that at this point in time, we've come up to about the 11th century, with the Abbasid Sunni state really in shambles, falling apart, and the Turkish military coming to dominate it. This very different group, the Ismaili Shia, who we can see have some very different ideas, particularly about leadership and spiritual guidance, are now coming to be a very potent rival to the Sunni Abbasids and to the Sunni Turks. And this is going to be the situation when everything is changed by the arrival of crusader armies from Europe who are going to exploit this weakness in this division, but are going to, that's going to eventually lead to a fusion of something very different in the Muslim world. So thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you for your comments. Please leave us a review and continue to follow us. Shukran Jazilin. Wa ma'asalam.